Welcome back to the General Muscle Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Greed, and you're listening to episode number 29. Today, we have a jam-packed Q&A. We've got some fantastic listener questions in from all of you guys out there on the Instagram poll. So I just wanted to say a big thank you to those who contributed, and we will crack straight into the first question. It asks, is it normal to cramp while flexing when trying to practice posing? What are some ways to stop this? All right, so let's think about, first of all, what is actually a cramp? Now, there has long been countering opinions in the sports injury and medical world about what is the actual cause of a cramp and what is actually going on. So there seems to be two predominant schools of thought, which are the dehydration hypothesis and the neuromuscular hypothesis. So for the dehydration hypothesis, it is believed that there is an imbalance between the electrolytes in the muscle causing the cramp, whereas in the neuromuscular option, we see that it is actually down to more so how the nerves are firing. And this is actually seeming to pull away for a lot of the scholars who look into this sort of thing according to the current evidence. And basically what they get at in this hypothesis is that the muscle cramp occurs due to an imbalance between excitation produced by the muscle spindles and the inhibitory drive from the Golgi tendon organs, which are all receptors within the muscle that try to control the state of play within the muscle. So for example, a Golgi tendon organ, they are very sensitive to tension and they detect tension within the muscle and they basically stop us from exerting too much force that may injure ourselves. Or that is, I guess, the evolutionary role of these receptors. Now, that was actually from a paper that I read from Gio Riato et al. in 2018. That's all well and good to think about, you know, these things on a very molecular level, why are they actually occurring? But I think on a practical sense, we just need to think about posing like any other activity. It's going to be novel at the start. It's going to probably cause more muscle damage or more muscle soreness when we do it for the first time because it is not something we're accustomed to. But gradually, we're going to get better at it over time. In order for it to affect you less during your posing, you're just going to need to keep practicing and keep grading your exposure more and more over time and just keep at it and just keep doing it. And eventually your nervous system and your muscular system will become aware that, okay, this is a stimulus that we've seen before. We've done it on multiple occasions. We don't need to freak out at all. So I think that at the start, I definitely noticed that I really struggled to hold those poses for a long period of time without cramping but now of course I can do it pretty much all day if I want to so it is just a matter I think of giving it a bit more time allowing your muscular system and your nervous system to become accustomed to that particular task and it will just gradually feel better so yes I suppose you could consider the dehydration argument maybe if you notice that when you pose first thing in the morning when you're dehydrated or unfed perhaps you notice that the cramping is worse but perhaps if you do it later in the day when you've had some water when you've had some salty meals throughout the day you might notice it's a bit better obviously that's going to be coming down to the individual but it is worth something keeping an eye out for but i think when we consider it on the grand scheme of things i do believe it's just going to be a matter of practicing your posing often getting your body accustomed to that stimulus and hopefully some of those cramps should subside Alrighty, next question can mobility affect posture For example, can having tight shoulders cause a hunch? So for this question, I'm assuming that the question asker is referring to whether or not the reduced shoulder range of motion can cause a rounded shoulder or how it's referred to in the literature as forward shoulder posture. And this is actually a very interesting question because I was recently seeing a patient for some rotator cuff related shoulder pain and that patient had told me that her personal trainer had advised her that her forward shoulder posture 
was likely a reason for her shoulder pain, which unfortunately is just not true. And unfortunately, this does happen from time to time, people stepping outside of their scope. Obviously, you see it across a range of industries and a range of topics, but it is just important to be aware that we can't go around telling people that an element of their posture is related to their pain, especially when we don't necessarily have the credentials to do so. Once again, whenever I talk about posture, whenever I talk about whether it may be bending your lower back, how you sit, how you run, it's all gonna be very individual to the person and everyone is gonna be different. What we need to remember is that differences in people's posture, whether it's their neck going a bit more forward, whether it's their shoulders being slight rounded, these often just come down to individual variations in our own anatomy and our own structure. Now, humans are not these perfectly symmetrical beings. We don't all come out of the womb looking the exact same. We don't all grow up looking the exact same. So it's more than reasonable to assume that our bones and our skeletons are going to look pretty different as well. And sometimes in physiotherapy and in healthcare in general, we get fixated on these slight differences between our anatomy. And we think, you know, that has to be the cause of someone's pain. But often there's a lot more to it to that. We simply don't have any evidence to suggest that having a forward shoulder posture is causative of pain or that a lack of range of motion at the shoulder can cause a forward shoulder posture. Now, obviously, someone may have shoulder pain, which is then limiting their range of motion, but the pain is what is limiting them. It's not the fact that their posture being slightly more rounded at the shoulder is then limiting their range. So we just don't have the research to suggest that. The research on this topic is very limited. I did find something that claimed that this posture can cause so-called muscle imbalances, which can, and I quote, lead to alteration in scapula and glenohumeral orientation as well as kinematics, thus increasing the risk of developing neck, shoulder, and non-specific arm pain. But I'm quite skeptical of this, to be honest, because the paper that stated this didn't actually provide a reference for that particular fact. They had a few references related to other claims that they made in this particular paper or this particular paragraph, but that claim didn't actually have a reference behind it. So I'm a bit wary of that as it is. Later on in that paper, they go on to talk about, you know, subacromial impingement, which in itself is a concept that has been thoroughly debunked by the scientific community. So in all honesty, that piece of research lost me after that. So I don't really think I can put too much stock into that. And when it comes down to it, guys, you know, humans are not perfect. Like I was saying before, there's tons of different ways that we are put together. So if someone is trying to tell you that a particular aspect of your posture is going to lead to pain in the future or is the cause of your pain now, I really think they can't be doing that because pain is so much more complex than that. So when it comes down to rounded shoulders or forward shoulder posture, if this is something that you naturally present with and it isn't giving you any issues, no worries, play on. That's obviously just the way that you were designed. That was the way that you happened to grow and develop as a human being because all our skeletons are different. However, if you do have shoulder pain and this is something that you have noticed that you do have this particular posture, honestly, it's always gonna come back to needing to dig a bit deeper. Is your training load increasing? Have you sustained any trauma to that shoulder? You know, there's other things that are far more causative of an increase in shoulder pain than someone's natural variation or their natural posture. So this is something that I really don't think we need to get too caught up with, both from the perspective of the physio, but also from the perspective of the patient. So guys, if you're out there, you have these little imbalances, asymmetries, they're often nothing to be worried about. Just keep living your life, keep exercising, keep moving. Alrighty, next question. 
Will you ever compete in powerlifting? Really good question, one that I've been asked a couple times, and the short answer is no, but I guess there is some reasoning behind that. So don't get me wrong, I find powerlifting extremely impressive. If anybody has lifted in some of the lower rep ranges, like the lowest I goes, for example, a set of five to seven, and even sometimes those top sets get my heart racing, they get me feeling very nervous. So I have a enormous amount of respect for powerlifters because I don't think people quite realize how daunting it would be to walk up to your one rep max or potentially even more than your one rep max when you're going for a PB, say in a comp or in a training session, just having that sheer load on top of you or in your hands or on your shoulders, that's a lot to take in. And even the mental battle alone is really, really difficult to push past. And I imagine that would take its toll on you after a while, especially going through an entire powerlifting prep, just having to show up day in, day out and move some pretty immense loads would definitely be tough. But in terms of whether or not it's something that would interest me, not really. I don't particularly find doing one rep at a time super interesting for myself personally. I think I'm more interested in seeing how heavy I can get my 5RM, my 8RM, my 12RM. Can I get stronger with a set of 15 and a set of 20? So those are things that I find fuel me from a competitive standpoint. And if I can just keep progressing those over time, that will definitely be enough for me to stay satisfied and switched on and really motivated in my training. The other reason I suppose that this question often comes up is because There did seem to be a bit of a trend a few years ago where a lot of natural bodybuilders were doing some powerlifting in their off-season, and I think that can be really helpful, especially if you are someone who struggles to find a new goal. You've just finished getting shredded, you've just finished your competition season, and then you might be sitting there thinking, what now? So if you need a external goal like being able to improve your squat, your bench, your deadlift for a 1RM, if that keeps your training on point, if that keeps you motivated, if that keeps you distracted from perhaps worrying too much about the fat gain that is an inevitability in the off-season, then I think powerlifting can be a really good tool in that sense. However, if you are wanting to make the most of your physique as a natural physique athlete, I would also probably argue that training to be the best powerlifter that you can be is not necessarily going to align for that. There's definitely people who can do both. Kate Archibald comes to mind. She's done some powerlifting and she just walked away with a figure pro card in ICN and a figure pro win in her first ever season. Now, obviously, she's one of the genetic elite. She's got fantastic genetics and an extremely good work ethic, but it can work for some people. But I think for most people, if you want to be the best you can possibly be at one of those disciplines, you are going to need to choose it. And for me, it's also a consideration like that. You know, I want to be the best bodybuilder I can be. I want to be a world champion one day. I want to have a WMBF pro card one day. And me putting some time out of my schedule to quote unquote be a powerlifter would just not align with those goals. I'm not trying to stand up here and say I would even be good at powerlifting because I think honestly I would probably get smashed for my weight category. Like I know that in isolation, my lifts probably look okay. You know, my deadlift is pretty good. My bench is all right. My squat is all right. But for my weight class that I would be in at competition weight, I would get absolutely killed. So that is definitely a factor as well. I wouldn't want to get embarrassed by people because I definitely know that my total wouldn't be quite up there. I might make up a bit of ground on the deadlift, but I would certainly get obliterated in the squat and the bench. But 
for now, it will definitely be the bodybuilding. That is all I need to stay happy. So it's gonna be lifting in that five to 30 rep range, trying to get yakety yacked, trying to get swole and cutting down every couple of years to stand on stage in my underwear. Yeah, great question. I won't be doing that anytime soon, but who knows when I'm an old man and I'm trying to prove some teenagers in the gym wrong, perhaps I'll get into some 1RMs. Alrighty, next question. What are your favorite and least favorite topics in physio? So I actually had to talk to the question asker because I wasn't entirely sure what they mean. Like, did they mean what are the least favorite injuries that I see or disciplines of physiotherapy? And it was the latter. So more specifically, the question asker was saying, what are your favorite areas of physio and which ones do you not like so much? So obviously for myself, working in a primarily musculoskeletal sports clinic, that's where a lot of my passion for physio is. So for anyone that may be a bit confused, when you think of a musculoskeletal physiotherapist, that's pretty much what most people think of for a physio. So back pain, neck pain, sprained ankles, rehabbing people post-op, stuff like that. So the conditions that are related to muscles, ligaments, tendons, bones, even nerves, that's all the stuff that a musculoskeletal physio primarily deals with, and that's an area that I'm most passionate about, and I see myself being involved with for the entirety of my career. I really do enjoy the post-op stuff as well, especially post-op knees, so I find ACL rehab extremely interesting. I find post-op meniscal rehab really interesting as well, so any post-op stuff, even ankles and arms and shoulders and stuff like that, the rehabbing process for that, getting to liaise with the doctors and the surgeons a bit, I find that really interesting. So that's definitely an area I hope to continue to get more patients in. And then obviously there's the sporting stuff as well. Now, I don't necessarily enjoy being a quote-unquote game day physio, you know, running out onto the field and triaging people beside the sideline and stuff like that. That doesn't interest me as much, but I do enjoy working with athletes from a range of different sports. So I've seen people who play football, rugby, touch football, basketball, all sorts of different things. And I really enjoy working with those patients because they're often very motivated, very active, very keen to do what they need to do in order to get back to playing to the best of their ability. So all sort of sports are really interesting to me as well. And then in terms of the hospital work, this is not something I really enjoyed, but I will admit that orthopedic physio in the hospital setting was fairly enjoyable. And I probably didn't mind it because it is quite musk based, you know, you're dealing with a lot of acute post-op joint replacements, post-op ACL reconstructions, maybe even a post-op shoulder or elbow here and there. So that stuff was pretty interesting, but I do know that for me, the hospital is probably not quite where I wanted to see myself, hence why I didn't apply for any jobs in Queensland Health or anything like that. So that probably brings me to my least favorite areas of physio. And look, saying the least favorite is a bit harsh because I haven't really had much experience other than what I've learned at uni or the short time that I may have had within these areas on placement, but all in all, they're just not areas of physios that grab my attention a lot. So the first one would probably be cardiorespiratory. So that's when you're walking around the wards. A lot of what you do is getting patients up and taking them for walks and doing a lot of breathing work with people. So a cardiorespiratory physio is really taxed with the responsibility of making sure that 
the respiratory system of the patient is functioning well so getting them up for walks if they do have some retained secretions or sputum on their lungs they want to do breathing exercises to try and clear those and there's all sorts of different gizmos and gadgets that you can use to help with that as well and then you've got pediatrics so speaks for itself working with young kids and that sort of thing that is a little bit harder in physiotherapy I find I definitely think that it takes quite a patient person and quite a creative person to do really well as a pediatric physio so for me I know that it's just not a huge strength of mine to gamify rehab in that way which you really do need to do if you're going to be working with young kids so obviously I still see kids that are you know 10 8 5 years old but that'll be for musculoskeletal based disorders so things like Osgood Schlatter's, things like Sever's disease. So pediatric conditions that are still musculoskeletal in origin. However, a pediatric specialty physio would be more so working with a lot of kids with cerebral palsy, perhaps with Down syndrome, a lot of developmental conditions. And it's really important job that they do because ultimately if kids aren't able to move as well for a certain reason, then it's really crucial that they get this sort of rehab because that allows them to participate more in play and socializing which of course is really important for mental development so they do a great job it's just something I'm not 100% interested in and I know that I would probably really struggle with and then talking about the hospital life in general it's just not something that massively appealed to me probably because of the fact that there's just a lot of other stuff to worry about so I'm not someone who necessarily thrives under pressure in situations where you need to make really quick decisions and that sort of thing. I tend to like to take my time, think, and come up with a plan that I think is going to work best for the patient. But obviously, sometimes in the hospital, you need to be very reactive. You need to be on your toes and that sort of thing. So I have immense respect for the people who can do that in the hospitals because it's not easy. But I tend to find that in the hospitals, yes, you have your own clinical agenda that you need to worry about, but then there's all the outside stuff as well, sort of what other health professionals are trying to do with that patient maybe at the same time. And that's all a part of it, you know, working with the broader team to ensure that everything can get covered and everything can get done on time. But it does just create a few extra headaches, which was not something I was too keen on. But I definitely know that musk physio in a private practice setting is exactly what I wanted to do when I came out of uni and been very fortunate to get a job in that area. So that'll definitely keep me busy for a long time to come. Alrighty, next question. Thoughts on functional patterns training for athletic performance? Really interesting question, actually. One that I have not received before, and a big shout out to Sam Hazlitt, who asked this one. So firstly, I think we should probably cover what is functional patterns, as some of the listeners may not have heard that before. And essentially, this is a framework or a concept that was conceived by a man named Naudi Aguilar, who I guess had this idea of shaking up the health and fitness scene, especially related to exercise and especially related to this idea of functional fitness. Now, I'm going to actually read from the Functional Patterns website and give you a bit of a taste as to how they describe their framework. So they say, functional patterns is about training organisms in relation to their biological characteristics. According to leading research on the primary movements humans did for locomotion and survival, standing, walking, running, and throwing were the four most important movements for human survival. Functional patterns was designed to optimize the first four human movements. If you learn what it takes to precisely execute these movements to the highest degree, the benefits will transfer to literally every other movement you do. 
end quote. All right, so in a nutshell, this framework, I guess, focuses on these four key pillars of exercise they have identified in order to optimize performance and also to reduce or manage pain. Now, I am a huge proponent of exercise. It is the thing I'm most passionate about as a physiotherapist, and it is my number one intervention for the vast majority of the people that I see at work. So people promoting exercise, promoting movement, I'm a huge fan of that. But what I'm not a fan of is this idea that there is a silver bullet out there when it comes to exercise, or the idea that one form of exercise is miles better than another, which does seem to be what functional patterns seems to push in their marketing. So I really do have quite an issue for someone saying that one form of exercise is better than another, because I think one, we just don't have the evidence to suggest that, and two, it's a really reductionist way of thinking because everybody's different, everyone's going to have different goals and desires and wants and different ways to enjoy moving and people derive meaning from exercise in different ways. So I think saying that one is good and another is bad, I think is really problematic for a lot of reasons. And if you have a look at the Functional Patterns website, you can see that their testimonials are quite prevalent. And look, there's no denying that they've had some great results. But I seriously question that the people who wrote those testimonials saw such great results specifically because they were doing this quote unquote, first four training principles of human biomechanics. Or is it just because they found a training program that they were able to perform pain-free, that suited their goals and that they enjoyed? Now, to me, that sounds like something that we should all be striving for. We should all be striving to find exercises that bring us meaning that we can do without large amounts of pain and that suit our goals at our time and that move us towards a better version of ourselves that we want to see ourselves as. So, yeah, I just don't think that there's anything special about specifically training, walking and running and throwing like there's nothing special about that. It's just another form of exercise. And if you want to do that, that's fantastic. But if you want to do something else, that's equally as credible and equally as appropriate, which I also think that the Functional Patterns crew don't quite give enough credence to. They tend to shun a lot of exercises that don't meet their philosophy or their framework. So they've got articles on their website sort of talking about how bad squats and deadlifts are for you in the long term, which is just complete nonsense. We just know that it's not the case. And any sort of exercise that someone can do should be encouraged if they are doing so safely. When it comes to pain specifically, there is just not enough evidence to say that one form of exercise is better than another. And if anything, there's actually emerging evidence showing that exercise does not have to be specific. Obviously, when we're talking about high-end athletes, yes, specificity is gonna be key. But when we're just talking about generally living a healthy, pain-free life where we can do everything we wanna do, I just don't think it's worth getting caught up in the minutiae of these fine details when really we just need to get moving in some way. And I think the fact that any exercise can have a positive effect on someone's pain speaks to a couple things. I think one, it speaks to the fact that pain is so complex, it's so multifactorial, and it can very rarely be distilled down to something as simple as tissue damage or a movement pattern being incorrect. And the other thing I think it speaks to is that the benefits of exercise and movement are so vast that it doesn't really matter what you do. It has so many positive impacts on multiple systems within our body, including our mental health, which really can't be discounted as well. So 
When it comes to functional patterns, look, if that's something that you have tried and you really enjoy it, if you find that it is a meaningful and fun and progressive way that you can do your training, that is fantastic. All power to you, but I just think we do need to not demonize other form of exercises just because it doesn't fit in with our own ideas of what true high performance training may be. So just because you may take part in functional patterns doesn't mean you must tell people to stop squatting and stop deadlifting and stop lifting weights because I don't think that's correct. And I think we just all need to accept that there are tons of different ways we can move our bodies and any of them are generally going to have a positive effect on our health and well-being. Today's episode is brought to you by PowerSubs and a very exciting product has just landed that I am pumped about. So many of you may be aware that if you've seen on my Instagram, I have long been a fan of cream of rice, but unfortunately it is very hard to come by here in Australia. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that has all changed because JD Nutraceuticals has just dropped their very own cream of rice product and it is available now at PowerSubs. It comes in three varieties, vanilla, choc chip, as well as an unflavored version. And let me tell you, this stuff is the real deal. I have already got my hands on some and not only does it taste amazing, but the mixability and the texture is absolutely on point. And it is so much faster to make than the other cream of rice products I've tried in the past. To get your hands on it, head over to PowerSubs Cleveland and use my name or the podcast to get 10% off your order in store. Alternatively, you can jump online at powersubs.com.au and use the code general for 10% off your cart. That's the code general, G-E-N-E-R-A-L, to pocket some savings next time you shop. The cream of rice revolution is here. It is going on right now. So get amongst it and see what all the fuss is about. PowerSubs, the home of no home brands. Alrighty, next question. I do like this. We're getting a few in-depth ones. We're getting a few personal ones. So I think this should be a nice mix, but it asks, what is your favorite thing to do outside of bodybuilding and physio? Now, this is actually quite a difficult one because I do feel like a lot of my life does revolve around those two things. Because if I'm not at work, I'm often training. I'm often recording a podcast, sometimes doing some reading around either of the two topics. So I do like watching movies and TV shows. At the moment, I'm watching a few different ones so I've just got an Apple TV and I'm enjoying Ted Lasso and Morning Wars at the moment those are both really good I'm also watching The Clone Wars which is a Star Wars animated series so that's just my little filler show that I use here and there and the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series has come out on Disney Plus so episode 3 is coming out tonight which I cannot wait to tuck into And I do, of course, love listening to podcasts. It's actually probably bordering on an obsession at this point. I probably listen to a good 15 to 20 podcasts a week, I would say, across a range of different topics. So there's obviously some health and fitness and bodybuilding ones in there. I listen to a podcast about my NBA team, which is the Brooklyn Nets, my football team, which is Arsenal. And then there's also some comedy podcasts in there as well, just to change it up a little bit, have a bit of lighthearted humor every now and again. And of course, a few Star Wars podcasts as well, which I enjoy getting into. And I do follow the NBA and I do follow the English Premier League. So the NBA is nearing the end of the season. So they're into finals and the football season is all done, but though we'll inevitably ramp up again soon, which will be good. And other than that, I just enjoy hanging out with Gemma, who's my girlfriend, hanging out with my family, going out to the movies, going out to dinner, enjoying some downtime in that respect as well. 
And another thing that I also really do enjoy is reading books. So I tend to not get into anything too heavy. So I actually read some Star Wars novels that are set in slightly different times of the galaxy or maybe cover some characters or some stories that we haven't heard as much about. So I really enjoy my Star Wars novels and have been enjoying them for a while now. So those are all things I like to do just outside of the gym and outside of work. And I think it really is important to have some interests that are completely different from what you do when it comes to bodybuilding or what you do for work because otherwise you just don't really have a chance to switch off, decompress, get it out of your mind for a little bit because we're just constantly thinking about the same thing, especially for people who are contest prep coaches. You know, They may be really interested in training themselves and have their own physique-related goals, and then they spend all day doing check-ins and writing programs and writing meal plans and macros. So the entirety of their day is just geared to this health and fitness lifestyle. And while that's amazing and it's awesome that people are able to derive income from that, it is also just a reminder that you do need to take some time to decompress, get your mind off that sort of thing because otherwise you will inevitably burn out. And the turnover rate for personal training is extremely high. I think I heard once that the average personal trainer is only in the industry for something like six months to a year. So in order for you to be able to do this long term, it's really good to have some strategies, whether it is reading books, whether it is watching movies or TV shows, or having a hobby completely different to this world of health and fitness. I think that's really important just to be able to ensure that the longevity is there. Alrighty, next question. What is your opinion on cardio during a bulking slash massing phase? So this is an interesting one because it can sometimes seem a bit counterintuitive. You know, we're in a massing phase, we've put ourselves in a caloric surplus in order to build tissue, but then we're doing additional cardio, which is in, in fact burning more calories and taking us into less of a surplus. So it can feel like a bit of a oxymoron at times, but there are reasons why I think you may want to do some forms of cardio in a massing phase. So one option is that if you are noticing that your cardiovascular system and your breath is the limiting factor in some of your training sets, especially the higher upper ones, you know, the sets of 15 to 20 where you are lifting for a longer period of time. If you're noticing that those are starting to suffer as a result of your fitness not being good enough and you're feeling like you could be taxing the muscles more, that's where it could be indicated to maybe do some cardio on your rest days, maybe some hit sessions, just in order to build a bit of that cardiovascular capacity. I also do find that doing some level of expenditure I think is good just for general health, for your general routine and productivity as well. So I do like to keep a step goal of around 8,000, even at peak mass. And that's actually just at the moment been ticked up to 10,000 for this mini cut. But I do like just to have a regular normal step count that I hit each day just to ensure that I'm moving around a lot because whilst my job is not sedentary it also doesn't involve a ton of movement it's mainly just sort of walking to and from the gym at work walking around the plinth and demonstrating some exercises for patients and that sort of thing so it's not like I'm on a building side and getting tons of steps in so I do think doing some amount of extra expenditure like that is a good idea. The other thing that we need to consider is that a lot of the time people talk about actually moving around a bit more tends to help with their appetite and their digestion and that sort of thing. And obviously I won't comment on that in too much depth because I don't know the ins and outs of how all that works. But at least anecdotally, I have found that 
in this most recent offseason, keeping a regular step count, being a little bit more active has helped me get the food down easier and makes me feel a little bit less sluggish by the end of the day because I haven't just been sitting still and eating for the entire day, which doesn't make you feel too good. So the final thing that I would just comment on when it comes to cardio in the off season is that you do need to be strategic with it. So if you find that your cardio sessions are taking away from your weight training, then you really do need to find a way to optimize them more because we just can't be having that. As natural athletes, our number one catalyst for potentiating muscle growth, for flipping that switch that gets muscle actually growing and tissue developing on our physique is gonna be our training. So if we're doing anything to cause that to suffer, it's really gonna impact how you look next time on stage because training is everything for us. We've got training, we've got food, we've got creatine, and that's pretty much all we can do when it comes to gaining muscle as a natural athlete. So we don't want anything to get in the way of that. So that might mean doing your cardio on a rest day or keeping the intensity low enough so that it doesn't impair your performance for sessions to come. Next question. Tips on reducing excessive anterior pelvic tilt during standing and walking. Well, 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 the infamous anterior pelvic tilt. Alrighty, so first of all, what is it? Anterior pelvic tilt refers to the position of the pelvis relative to your femurs or your thigh bones, and it is described by the pelvis being a little bit more forwardly rotated relative to what is considered a neutral position. So unfortunately, like many things related to posture and anatomical variation, anterior pelvic tilt is surrounded by a lot of misinformation and some clinicians will claim it is always a cause of low back pain or pelvic pain or hip pain, whatsoever have you. And that's honestly just a lot of nonsense really because like I was saying in the previous question, it does just come down to another form of variation within our anatomy. So the first thing we really need to consider is why are we trying to correct anterior pelvic tilt? Because it's not causative of pain and it's actually extremely common in the pain-free population. So I was looking at one study by Harrington in 2011 and they showed that of all their participants in that particular study, 85% of males had anterior pelvic tilt and 75% of females also had it. And these were all pain-free asymptomatic subjects. So all of these people had this so-called abnormality in their anatomy, but they weren't feeling any pain as a result. So I would really question why we're trying to correct it in the first place, because if you're trying to do some exercises or some stretches to correct this anterior pelvic tilt purely to reduce pain, there's probably going to be a bit more to it than that. Now, there is this theory where people believe pelvic alignment to be the result of some muscles being tight or weak. And this is most prominent in this lower crossed syndrome theory, in which it is claimed that a combination of tight hip flexors and tight spinal rectors alongside weak abdominals and weak glutes causes this anteriorly tilted pelvis and eventually leads to pain. Now, this is just absolute garbage. There's no scientific evidence to support the lower cross syndrome theory. And realistically, it's just clinicians trying to connect dots that are just not there. So can we actually change pelvic tilt in the first place? Well, evidence would actually suggest not. So a 2009 study by Levine showed that an eight-week abdominal strengthening program had no impact on anterior pelvic tilt measurement. And in 2012, there was a study by Lopez Monaro et al. And they showed that a hamstring stretching protocol also had no impact on anterior pelvic tilt in a standing position. So 
Not only is it maybe futile to try and correct it in the first place, but it turns out we may not even be able to change it at all. And this makes sense, guys. Like, if you think about your pelvis, that is a part of your bony skeleton, your overall structure, and it's not gonna be easy to change that. Think about someone with crooked teeth. They need to actually get wires in there in order to straighten them out and keep them in place. And even when they have done their job, you still need to wear a retainer to make sure they don't just go right back into the place. So we need to think it's not easy to make these structural changes. Often they require very invasive intervention and that's just not gonna be done by a few sit-ups and a few hamstring stretches. One thing I really just wanna hammer home is that this idea of anterior pelvic tilt, this is not a diagnosis, this is not a condition, it is simply a way to describe someone's anatomy, which we know can vary enormously between healthy, pain-free individuals. So it doesn't matter if someone has pain or not, they could have a wide array of different anatomical structures at the shoulder, the neck, the lower back, the hip, all of these things can be perfectly normal and it's just not worth getting caught up in these really minute details because you're probably gonna be missing the bigger picture if you get too caught up in these things. What you can sort of think about is, okay, perhaps you notice that someone has come to you, they're complaining about pain when they're squatting and you notice that they have some anterior pelvic tilts. Now, don't immediately think that that is the cause of their pain or that is the reason why they have pain during squatting because you're missing the bigger picture. You're missing the person in front of you. There are so many more things that go into experiencing pain and we need to dig in a bit further before we attribute one specific anatomical variation, which could be completely benign as the cause of our pain. So rather than getting lost in the minutiae of whether or not your pelvis is one to two degrees rotated more than neutral, I think we can spend more time digging into people's stories, their histories, their relationship with exercise, their current understanding of pain. A lot of those things are gonna tell you a lot more about how to help this person than whether or not they are in a slight degree of anterior pelvic tilt. Alrighty, final question. And as you know, we do like to finish on one that is a bit more lighthearted. So the question asker states, when did the Clone Wars begin? Fantastic question, because obviously the Clone Wars is something that raged on for many years, but I'm sure all of you are desperately wondering, well, what actually kicked it off? So I believe if you go back in the timeline, the first true battle of the Clone Wars was the Battle of Geonosis. Now, what happened was is that Obi-Wan got captured and he ended up on this planet alongside Padme, alongside Anakin, and they were in this big arena on Geonosis where they were all gonna be killed almost like Roman-style gladiator fighting all these beasts. And then what happened was they broke free, they got their lightsabers back, and they ended up in this full battle against a lot of the droid army. But then of course, the Jedi were there as well, this epic scene, probably the best part of episode two, where we just see all these different colored lightsabers fighting these droids. It was a really nice scene, a really good spectacle. And then is a final showing of the Republic's might and the Republic's power. Yoda comes in with the clones and they finish the job. So I think if you go back in the timeline, that would probably be the first true battle 
of the Clone Wars, so the Battle of Geonosis, which we see in The Phantom Menace, and then of course there were many to follow after that. But if we're talking about the first battle we see in the Clone Wars franchise, now that is the Battle of Christophsis. So just in case the listener there was trying to catch me off guard, don't worry, I know my Clone Wars. But that's going to do it for us today, guys. Thank you very much for listening to this Q&A, and thank you to all those who asked questions. There were some really good ones this week, and I'm hoping we can keep this rolling, keep this momentum up, and get in as many questions as we can. Before we get into the normal sign-off from the show, I actually have some very exciting news to announce. Some of you may be aware that I've actually become a co-host of another podcast, which is called the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. This is a show that I do with three gentlemen who have actually already been on my podcast, and that is Daniel Yates, Daniel Chappelle, and Jack Radford-Smith, where we do talk all things bodybuilding and health and fitness, but it's a little bit more low-key, it's a little bit more relaxed, and you definitely get to learn a bit more about us as people, not just as competitors or as coaches or as physios, so it's a nice insight into a bit of personal stuff as well. So if you're wanting to listen to another podcast with my voice on it, something that is a bit more relaxed, a bit more laid back, and is definitely an easier listen than some of these can be, I would strongly encourage you to head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and just type in the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast and that'll pop up there for you. So head on over, give it a listen, give it a five-star review if you can as well. And of course, I would implore you to do the same for this show. So head on to Spotify or Apple, leave a rating and review and that means a lot to the show. It really helps us grow to get in as many ears as possible. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot of it on your phone and post it up to your Instagram story. Be sure to tag myself at general.muscle and I'll reshare it on my account as well. So as always, guys, a really big thank you for tuning in. I really appreciate all the listens, all the downloads and the support on the show has been fantastic. So please continue to spread the word and I'll continue to bring you the content. So thank you very much for listening. And as always, we'll be back every single Monday with new episodes We'll see you in the next one.